Let's pray one more time before we uh, study the Word together today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Oh, how glorious. Lord, the rain, the, the clouds, the, just the scattered blue sky. Lord, you are such a glorious and great God. All of creation tells of your handiwork, reflects your glory, Lord. And Father, we see in fair and in brighter lines in your word, our bleeding, dying Lord. And so now we pray that you would magnify Christ to us, and in your word, we pray that we would magnify the Lord together with one voice as a church. Father, my heart is overflowing today with a good theme, and the theme is the beauty and the importance of your church. I pray that you would deliver that and drill that home to us today by the Spirit of the living God. Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to talk about today what I've entitled the safety of the local church, the remedy for apostasy. The safety of the local church and the remedy for apostasy. Last week, we looked at verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart falling away or that falls away from the living God. So that is apostasy depicted for us, described, painted for us of an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then what comes in verse 13 is known as a strong adversative in the flow of the mind of the author. That is to say that there is a sharp contrast uh, that is being brought in in verse 13. It's beware, don't fall away from the living God, but instead of doing that, instead of the dread of that, instead of the peril of apostasy, here is the remedy for apostasy, and it has everything to do with the local church with the local church. And so, in order for us to really appropriate this remedy, three things we need to understand about the significance and the importance of the local church. And the first one is what I call the power of encouragement. The power of encouragement. You see that there in the text in verse 13. But encourage one another day after day. I was tempted to do the whole sermon just on that, and I thought, you know, my church lets me get away with one sermon or one verse sermons, but I don't know about partial verse sermons. It'd be a little too much. So now we'll cover the whole verse, but yes, one verse, verse 13. But there we see the word encouragement and the phrase one another. Do you understand how significant that phrase is, one another? It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Word of God. It's all over the New Testament, and it's in connection with the local church. This really is the heart of ecclesiology, what we do among one another. And there are probably dozens, if not hundreds, of places, maybe that would be too much, but definitely dozens of places, just for my look at it, places where Scripture stresses what we ought to be doing to one another. And the reason this is so important, and it's not just an inspirational message on how to be a good member in the church, is because of the sober 
context that we find this in. It is encourage one another in the context of falling away from the living God. So this is not just the pastor prodding you today to be a good church member, do your part. But this is me reminding us that the means that God uses in order to remedy the potential and the danger of apostasy is one another ministry. So it matters very much what we do. You know, the Bible gives us several metaphors to think about when we think about the local church. The local church is an organism. It is a living, thriving thing. And the Bible says that the church is like a body with many parts. And that's simple for us to understand. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. So this speaks to the fact that we are inseparable from one another. We are inseparable. And of course, you know that context. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that is the place where Paul talks about the church as a functioning and the metaphor of a body more than any other place that he does, but he uses that metaphor in different places. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Colossians 1. You see how important it is for Paul to get across to us that we are a body and that every member is important. The Scripture also speaks of the fact that the church is like a building. It's like a it's like an edifice that God is building. Turn to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 2, just to show you this. But um, Scripture says that we are God's building. Paul says you are God's temple. God says you are, uh, a Hebrew says we are God's house. And Peter says we are his spiritual house. Uh, read this with me, 1 Peter 2, 4. It says, in coming to him... As to a living stone, that is Jesus, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to that language. Jesus, a stone rejected by men, is choice and precious in the sight of God. Boy, that's a sermon. You also, amazing link, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See the metaphor there? Jesus Christ, the head of the corner, the corner stone, and then based on the cornerstone, all the other little living stones are built and find their place. They take their cue and their plumb line from the corner stone. And because of that, our spiritual sacrifice, our praise to God is acceptable through Jesus Christ because we are built upon Jesus Christ. But the idea of a living stone is a remarkable metaphor. Have you, heard, have you ever heard of anybody talking about a living building? Uh, there's a lot of buildings going up around here. You see the cranes everywhere. Texas, don't stop building. We are going to run out of water before we run out of land, and that's a really dangerous thing for us. 
But they don't stop building around here. But I tell you what, if you go up to any contractor and you say, that building is alive, he would tell you to get away from his equipment, that's for sure. Right? A building that is alive? No, that's, that's not an appropriate uh, association. Well, it is when you're talking about the church. You see, because you are alive and I am alive and we are living stones in God's building. This is where all the one another language is going to come from. The fact that we have something to contribute because we are living organisms in the bigger picture, the living organism that is the church. We are like a family. We are interconnected. The Bible calls us the household of God. We're in a family. And everything that Pastor Chris was talking about, that we are in it through the thick and thin, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we stick together, at least those that are committed to that church or whatever church God commits you to, that is the way that we ought to look at it. Jesus began all of this one another language. You remember in John 13, verse 34, he tells the disciples to love one another. And then the apostles pick up that language of one another and they, are, they, they attribute it to all these different things. Consider the list. We are told in Colossians 3 to teach one another. That's remarkable. That is not, my dear friends, just referring to the ministry of the pastor. They say, so many people have that view of church. Oh, the teaching part. Oh, that's for the pastors to do. Or just a couple of ministry leaders like the men's teaching, whoever's teaching the men's group or the ladies' group or small group, but that's about it. I can just skate by that one because that's not my gift and that's not my calling. No, at some fundamental point, every single one of us is to be engaged in teaching at some fundamental level. Now, this is not talking about the technical office of a teacher, but the practical ministry that we teach one another various things. I remember having a conversation with one dear sister, and um, she was really angry at feminism. And she proceeded to talk to me about feminism and, and how bad it is, and egalitarianism, and how women should not teach over men. And she just went on and on for about 45 minutes about this, gave me the history of feminism, and she brought all of these scriptures to bear and refuting feminism. And she said, and that's why women should never teach men in any context. And I said, Thank you for teaching me that. <laughs> she said, oh, relax. There is nothing wrong with every single person here to some degree encouraging another person here, teaching me, telling me I've been meditating on this verse this week, and do you know, do you want to know what God was showing me? I will receive that from a child in this church. You don't have to hold an office to do that. That's what this is calling us to. Teach one another. Love one another. Rebuke one another. 1 Timothy 5.1, 1 Timothy 5.20, 2 Timothy 4.2. It also tells us in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 4, forgive one another. Boy, that's tough, right? A certain combination of situations, certain sins that you've been sinned against with. And boy, I tell you what, this commandment, this exhortation, this injunction to forgive one another becomes tough. It says, serve one another. How about this verse, Romans 12.10? Give preference to one another. Uh, some uh, have translated this as 
outdo each other in honor. Wow, think about that. I'm going to out-honor you. I'm going to treat you better than you treat me at your house. I'm going to cook you a better meal. Well, you know, let's not get competitive about something like that, but you, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm straining for analogies here. I'm going to bless your socks up. I'm going to be so good to you as my brother, my sister. I'm going to be such a blessing to you. I'm going to honor you. Have the same mind with one another. How about this? Romans 14, 19. Build up one another. Build up one another. Folks, I'm going to talk to us at the very end of this and see how is this sitting with each one of us today. Build up one another. How about Romans 15, 5? Or 15, 7? Accept one another. That is so hard to do in the church, isn't it? We're all different. Different races, different colors, different shapes, different sizes, different status, different place of life, different homes, different possessions, different uh, income, you name it. But it says, accept one another. Maybe that person doesn't dress like you dress. Accept one another. Maybe that person is... uh, free to do things that you're not free to do in the Lord. Accept one another. You know, all the different range of uh, things that apply to that. Turn with me to Romans 15, if you would. Romans 15, because here it stresses our responsibility to be able to do such things. Romans 15, beginning in verse 14, it says that we are to have discernment. It says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced, this is what every pastor would want to say, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. You see, this is why every single one of us has to be engaged in Bible study. We have to have the discernment. We have to be uh, filled with knowledge to have the ability to admonish one another. It tells us, therefore, that we need to also be responsible in how we execute this ministry to one another, that we don't run around thinking that it's our job to be the Holy Spirit in every single person's life in this church. We have the rebuke ministry. That's our gift. (laughs) But we have to be responsible. We have to be cognizant. Above all, the aim should be love. Above all, the aim should be edification. What the one another theology of Scripture teaches us is that it is that the church and every member in the church is absolutely indispensable. You matter. You matter. Everyone counts. Everyone should be able to both admonish someone and to be admonished by someone. And and Hebrews is telling us this needs to happen on a regular basis. You see the verse? Look at the text. Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another day after day. That's just a Greek construction that means continually. That's it. Continually do this. Day after day. And the sheer fact that the exhortation is given here to do it day after day really stresses how crucial this is for our spiritual lives, right? 
It's like an athlete. He has to exercise day after day. Day after day. And the calling to engage in this means that this is what life looks like in Christ. We are encouraged. We encourage. We are committed. And one of the ways that we are committed to encourage one another is to remind us of things that we know so well, but that we can forget so easily. Turn to Jude, verse 5. Jude 5. When there are no chapters in a book like Jude, you don't say Jude 1, 5 because there's no 2. So Jude, verse 5. But here, we see the power of encouragement based on the fact that we encourage each other and remind each other of what has happened in the past. You remember the context of Hebrews. This is precisely what the author of Hebrews has just done by pointing us back to the example of Israel. This is what Jude does. Now, I desire to remind you that you know all things once for all, that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So we can look back to the history of Israel, back to the exodus, back to the exile, back to the captivity, back to the prophetic ministry of the major prophets and the minor prophets. We can look back to those days and remind each other of the consequences of unbelief. To tell the story again. Now, these are negative ways of doing it, but there's also a positive way of doing it. And to show you that, I want you to turn to Romans 15, because this is nuclear strength for encouraging the church if we get this. If we understand that the encouragement ministry of one another is primarily based on the Word, that we encourage each other based on Scripture... Oh, the ability to be able to take your Bible, open it for one another, and encourage each other out of it. That's what Romans is saying. Romans 15, beginning in verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. You see that? Looking to the past, it's everywhere. So that through perseverance, and watch this, and the encouragement of the Scriptures... We might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A spectacular passage of Scripture. Now, notice the logic of the text. It says... That we are to, that we are to uh, uh, benefit from the Word of God, watch, through the encouragement of the Scriptures. Now, what is encouraging us? The Scriptures. But then verse 5 makes it very clear where encouragement comes from. Now, may the God who gives encouragement. You see that? And I think what we're supposed to get from Paul's words here is, In order for God to encourage me, I need to avail myself to the way that He encourages me, namely the Scriptures, because the two are 
essentially inseparable. They're almost in opposition to one another. Encouragement of the Scriptures, God giving encouragement. That's how He does it. That's how they're related. They are inseparable. This is why every single one of us has to be a student of the Bible. Nobody gets a pass here. Again, it is not just the pastor that studies. It is not just the pastor that is involved in buying books and reading books and knowing theology and knowing doctrine. Oh, don't get me wrong. Not everybody is going to be as theologically astute as one another, but every single person in this church should be reading a commentary, a study Bible. You have a concordance, and you open it up. Let me just give you one small project. Take a concordance. You can get them online. Now, you have no excuse. You're going to feel terrible after this sermon. (laughs) You have no excuse whatsoever. Open up a concordance online. Go to Blue Letter Bible or something like, or eSword. They give you free Bible software. Open up a concordance and search every place that the Bible says one another. One another. And just be encouraged. Just let the Word of God wash over you. Okay. Second thing. Not only in order to understand, only to apply the remedy of apostasy to ourselves. It has everything to do with encouragement. They means we have to be accountable to one another in each other's lives. We have to be meaningfully engaging each other biblically. And not just talking about the weather, not just talking about sports, not just talking about ministry, but talking about real encouragement, real life issues. Now, the second thing is this. We have to also grasp the reality of the potential for apostasy. And this I take from the phrase, encourage one another day after day. Watch this. As long as it is still called today. That word in, in quotations, today, obviously he's quoting Psalm 95. I told you, chapter 3, chapter 4 at this point is an exposition of Psalm 95. It is the author expounding on Psalm 95 for us. And that's why he is quoting the word today. And it goes back to verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. And so now he's just latching on to that one word, today. It is today. You are in a, you are in a, um, a phase of time that the author of Hebrews identifies as today, a, a certain day. And what is this certain day? This is the day where the children of Israel either stood to gain the promises of God or to disbelieve and disobey the will of God. That is what today stands for. In other words, it represents the potential for apostasy. The potential. That means that this one-time initial historical event, namely the Exodus, because that's what this is going back to, the Exodus, It means that this now has a timeless application. Every believer, every church, every generation now stands in this today phase and now has to make a decision, right? Like a a Joshua 24 type of decision. Choose this day what God you're going to serve. Are you going to pick one of the 
pagan deities from among the nations to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens up, I will come in and sup with him. That is not Jesus giving an evangelistic altar call. (laughs) That is Jesus standing outside of the door of a church. Picture this. Standing outside the door of a church, knocking on the doors of the church and saying, if you open up to me, I will come in and I will sup with you. That's what Revelation 3.20 is about. Jesus' willingness to abide with his people. It's really amazing language. But um, here's the other aspect that you have to keep in mind when you're looking at this word today. Notice that it says, as long as it is called today. You see the duration there? As long as it is called today, meaning that today, one day, will end. That today period of time will be over one day. Let me show you two places where it is over. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. On several occasions, the author of Hebrews connects the idea of apostasy to the parousia, or the second coming. The word parousia just means coming. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, he implies as much. He says, inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. That means He's not coming a second time to make atonement. He already made atonement to those who eagerly wait for Him or await Him. This word here, to uh, eagerly await, it is used in Scripture above everything else in conjunction to eschatology, that we are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, that we have in ourselves a sense of uneasiness, that we are longing for something to happen when you look around the world and say, God, where are you? Where is Christ? Oh, that He would come, just like... uh, John and Revelation, come quickly, Lord. Do you ever feel like that? I do. Come quickly, enough with the trials, enough with the temptations, enough with this fallen, evil, present age. Come quickly, whatever that means. Whoever is saved, whoever is damned, come quickly. There should be an element of that in all of us. Flip over to chapter 10, another place. The same potential for apostasy is mentioned again with the second coming. Knowing that the return of the Lord is near should produce inside of us a soul-preserving faith, a heart that does not shrink away from God in unbelief, but perseveres and continues and goes on and on and on and endures. So many people are faltering right there at that point. So many people today in the evangelical world are loosening up their grip right now on issues like homosexuality, loosening the grip on things like Rome and whether or not Christianity, Catholicism are both just the same. Catholicism, is it just another denomination like 
Presbyterianism or Baptists. Lots of people are losing their grip on these critical issues, and only time will tell where people end up. But here, we are told exactly where people end up. For yet, in a very little while, this is Hebrews 10, 37, verse 37, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. You see, that today is coming to an end. <laughs> Either by your personal eschatology or by a cosmic eschatology. Do you know what the difference is? Personal eschatology means you die and go and be with the Lord. Cosmic eschatology means Christ returns and every eye will see Him. But it will come to an end one way or another. He will not delay. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the, to the preserving of the soul. So in light of the reality of the second coming, in light of the fact that we are in an eschatology that says today will be over one day, the day that He returns, or the day that we stand in judgment before the Lord, whichever it is. We have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, here's my final point, and you can see this from the text. Not only do we need to grasp the reality of the power of encouragement in the local church, that it is the means through which God will preserve us and remedy the problem of apostasy. And not only do we have to understand that, that, that we stand in a potential place of apostasy, we always have to guard our heart. And to show us that, the last thing that we need to grasp is the progression of sin. Look at the text. He says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that, this is a big purpose clause, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so he ends with the progression of sin to understand that apostasy and the danger of apostasy doesn't work like this where you just wake up one day and say to yourself, for no reason whatsoever, you know what? I don't think I want to believe in Jesus anymore. I give up on all this stuff. You know what? I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God anymore. I'm just going to close the book and that's that. I can't do this anymore. Nobody just wakes up one day and comes to that conclusion. There is always, according to Scripture, there is always a progression involved. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, just to show us the components of how this progression of sin works. He gives us such a stellar description, a graphic description of how it works. First, let's read the text. James 1, beginning in verse 13 going down to 16. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Verse 16 
is a hinge verse, but this is important. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Such a perfect application to, do to Hebrews, isn't it? Hebrews is, we could just read this from Hebrews. Encourage one another, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, my beloved brethren. See, it's a pastoral heart that is expressed here. And James begins, as we look back at these verses, by setting out a proper doctrine of sin, namely that it is not God's fault. A proper doctrine of theodicy, we could say, the relationship of sin and God, evil and God. Because isn't it strange that in the mind of a fallen creature, that in the mind of a, of a depraved person, that sometimes we begin with trying to blame God for our sin. We want to skirt the whole issue, but not just skirt the issue, we want to lay the blame at God's feet. And so James makes it crystal clear that we are not to lay the blame at God's feet for our sin. But then he moves on to a proper description of sin as well, namely that sin originates in the principle of sin, the sin nature. Here it is described as lust, epithumia. Epithumia is a Greek word that just means strong desire, strong urge. It could be good or bad. I have an epithumia to serve the Lord, and that could be a good connotation. Or you can have an epithumia to murder. It is whatever impulse inside of us that can be, and in this context is, referring to a sinful impulse. It could be sexual lust. It can be angry lust. It can be food lust. It can be body lust. The women lusting after other women's bodies, that is, to have them, to look like them, to mirror them. MTV has built an entire industry on this principle. Materialistic lust, idolatrous lust, any evil impulse that arises out of our own fallen nature. And then verse 14 describes sin's progression in a very interesting way. As a matter of fact, he uses hunting terms. Uh, if you study any commentary on this, they'll point this out. He says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and he is enticed. Those are the types of words that in the first century people would use to describe the way that a predator would set out its bait for its prey. And if you would, we are sin's prey when we give in. Sin sets up a trap for us through temptation, and there is a point, according to this, there is a point of no return. There is a point that if we give in to the allurement and become enticed, it is so strong, it is so overwhelming, that it is literally too late. You pass the point of no return. When you are enticed, then lust has conceived and it gives birth to sin. So, this is when lust, when lust is conceived. The imagery is like a pregnancy. Once sin has been conceived in the womb of our hearts, there will be a delivery. Just like a woman that has come full term. There will be a baby. 
And in the same way, there will be a delivery. There will be a birth. But you know, this is the perversion of sin. That unlike a woman that is pregnant that gives birth to a living child, sin gives birth to death. Sin gives birth to death. This is why James says, do not be deceived, my beloved. In other words, if we can circumvent sin's progression before it has the ability to conceive in the womb of our heart, then we can avoid the wages of sin, which is death, which is death. But I want to remind you of the sin that that Hebrews is talking about. The sin here is the sin of unbelief. It is the sin of apostasy. It is the sin of failing to endure to the end. Now that we come to know that, we understand any sin can can begin the progression that leads us to full-blown apostasy. And this is where Hebrews is making an amazing argument that the importance of the local church is what God can use in your life to circumvent the whole progression of sin. And that's why it's so important. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 one more time, because I want, I want you to see this, this, this fact, why it's so powerful that we understand the safety that is found in the church to stave off apostasy so that we don't fall into sin's deceitful results, resulting in a hardness of heart, that we are not hardened against the Lord and the church and the importance of the local church is right smack dab at the center of all of this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 27. Um, Obviously, we're going to come back to these verses in the future in a few years. (laughs) But I think this is too big and it's too important for us not to mention this passage. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near for If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. What a tremendous verse. And here we're talking about assembling? (laughs) We go from the judgment of fire and the fury of fire, and what he is concerned about is Are you congregating? (laughs) I just think that's awesome. So three things to point out here. Verses 23 to 24, first, introduces the safety that is involved in the local church. The local church is that safe little hiding place for believers where we're supposed to trickle in the sheepfold with the shepherd guarding the door where all the sheep come in. And, and, and where they can find safety and refuge from the wolves. You come into the fold, but you stray from the fold, and you go out and you refuse to come in, and you become an easy target. And you become exposed to all of the fierce forces of wickedness that will assail your soul in unbelief. Second, 
We see, based on verse 25, the habit-forming danger of continually forsaking the church. And what does that mean? Well, obviously, it means failure to attend. Failure to attend. That's why in our church, we have a, we have a, a principle in our church that if you habitually fail to attend our church, we will remove you from membership. Because it makes no sense for you to be a member here if you're not going to come. <laughs> Just makes no sense. It's not good fruit. It's not good evidence. So failure to attend, failure to identify with a church. Some people don't want to identify with a local church. I can't tell you the madness of how many people I have met that tell me it's not really important to them where I go to church, if I go to church, whether or not I'm a member of a church. You know, going evangelizing, that's my church. I've heard things like that. Going to a conference, this is my church. It is not the same thing, brothers and sisters. It means to fully function as a healthy member of a church, to contribute to the church's growth and to its purity. And then third, third, verses 26 and 27 tell us of the terrifying consequences. Knowing the truth and continuing to live a life of disobedience connected to and expressed by one's rebellion to the authority of the local church will spell full-blown apostasy. So when people are not in church, how do we exhort them? How do we warn them? You know how I do it? I tell them, according to Hebrews 10, you are on the path to destruction. Oh, no, 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 no. I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in the Bible. I just, you know, I have problems with the church. You know, pastors, you know, they're just, uh, you know, I've been abused in the church in the past. People have wronged me. I've had people lie about me and slander me, and I've had things. You don't know what's happened at my last church and the reasons why I don't go. They just want money, grubby, you know, money-grubbing preachers and all of that. But all of those things are just excuses, and excuses will only lead you to further deception. The Bible is so wise, isn't it? And setting forth this wisdom for us, this simple means of grace, which brings us to the, the, the simple application for, for you and I. How are we doing in this church, in Heritage Grace Church? How do you feel like your soul is doing here? Do you feel like you are a meaningful member of this church? Do you feel like you're really thriving in this church, that it's meaningful to be here in this church, that you're using your gifts in this church, that you're really serving in this church? You know, if I could just get really real with you today, this is a young church. For all of you that became members here of Heritage Grace, you understand that a church of two, three, four, five years old is a baby church. It's just a baby. The success of that church is not a foregone conclusion. That means that every single one of us has to do our part. We have to recognize the type of church that Heritage Grace is. It is not a fully established you know, church that has been in existence for a century. We are a young church. Pieces of the puzzle are just being put into place. Things are changing. Families are coming. Families are leaving. And that's the way it's going to be. It ebbs and it flows. We are not this, you know, uh, squeaky, clean, how do I put it? We're not a well-oiled machine. <laughs> Hopefully we never get to the point of what Piper says, brothers, we are not professionals. I understand the spirit of that, but also to understand right now we're in a, we're in a small incubator stage of our church. 
you know, my wife was feeling up to it uh, yesterday, so I took her to a concert. (laughs) We went to go see Stephen Curtis Chapman, and we went down to this giant church over here in Dallas. Have you heard of it? First Baptist Church of Dallas. First Baptist Dallas. Is that what it's called, sweetheart? Robert Jeffers' church? Wow. Wow, who needs to go to Disneyland? No, I mean that in a good way. This place was impressive. One of the ushers, I was sitting there, he asked me who I was and what church I went to, and they said, they got this kind of lighting at your church? I said, um, maybe a couple light bulbs. <laughs> I mean, this place was elaborate. Now, to Robert Jeffers's credit, I have to mention, he presented the gospel, and he gave a stellar gospel presentation. Repentance, hell, sin, it was glorious. Anyway, just uh, wanted to mention that because sometimes big churches get a bad name, you know. But we are a small church, and that's why encouraging one another is so important. We're a young church, and our success is not a foregone conclusion. My dear brethren, if you don't come, how's the church going to run? Look, if Pastor Chris and I are just sitting here preaching at each other, I mean, that's kind of a neat experiment, but it's only so long I can tolerate that. He can tolerate me, vice versa. Hey, vice versa, bro. We need you guys to be the body. And I'm so grateful. Let me commend you. Let me commend you um, for coming. Your faithfulness, your faithfulness to give, your faithfulness to serve, your faithfulness to attend. Please don't ever underestimate that your attendance is not important. It is so important to me. With every family that walks into the Sunday, Sunday school class, my soul is refreshed. I get excited. It's like an incentive to do even better. I say the same thing in preaching. When more families attend and when we have one of those days where most people are here and not a whole bunch of people are sick or not a whole bunch of people are vacationing or had to work or whatever, and it's a full house, it just encourages me to be a better preacher. That's not to say I'm not going to preach when the pews are empty or low. I will. I'll always, by God's grace, I'll always deliver the sermon that God put on my heart. But I just wanted to stress to us the importance of one another. I need you as much as you need me. I need you to be here. I need you to encourage me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to hold me up. As much as I need to give to you spiritual food so that you can feed on it during the week, I need you just as much as you need me. And that's the way that Scripture says the church is supposed to be, a family. The foot cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. We all have a different function, but we all are necessary in order for the body to function. Right? So let's continue to be that body... um, 2015 is coming, and what God requires of us and what God has been speaking to me more than anything is faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. It is required of a steward that he first be found faithful, faithful, faithful. Man, I can go on and on. Let's pray before I continue a different line of thought. Let's pray, guys. Father, Lord, we do need that faithfulness and that commitment, every single one of us, Lord, and you are pleased by it. You are glorified by it. I thank you for your people. I thank you that they love your church. 
I hear so many good things in our church about people just wanting to give and give and give, give of their time, give of their resources, give of their, of their, of their own, um, just their opening up their homes and their hospitality and their finances, everything. And I'm so encouraged by their sacrifice. Father, would you make us a faithful church? You do not care what size we are. Lord, the only thing you care about is our heart. We can be a, mem- we can be a church of 20,000 people, but if we are not drawing near to you with our hearts, then we are far from you. And so, Lord, I pray above everything, purify our church. I want to pray, Lord, for every member here today, because I know the reality of sin, and I know the reality of what Hebrews just taught us, the deceitfulness of sin and how easy it is for us to fall away from the living God. And so, Father, would you protect your people? Would you put a hedge of protection around us? Lord, lead us and guide us and do not lead us into temptation, we pray. But protect us as we remain faithful to your church and to one another, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.